Amen. Thank you. I do have fire in me. Do you have fire in you? Put, put your hand up if you have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> let's, let's not have any tentative hands there. If you have the Holy Spirit in you. Let, let me take it back one step. If you believe the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can do everything that we're going to talk about today. It's as simple as that. Um, would you turn, please, open back up to Galatians 5. It's really good to see these things in the Word. Um, and keep a finger in there and turn to Ezekiel, if you would, 36. So two places, Galatians 5 and Ezekiel 36. Feels like a bit of show and tell, I think, uh, today. And it's often the way, I think, that, that the Holy Spirit orchestrates our services because a lot of what Abigail was just talking about man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and following those words and putting your whole life in his hands is what we're going to now um, speak about here Um, I was uh, struck by a a single verse um, in the week from you don't have to turn here in um, Psalm 93 at the very end of Psalm 93 the psalmist says Your decrees, God, are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. That line, holiness befits your house, or holiness adorns your house forevermore. And of course, we are the house of God. New covenant, right? We are the house of God. Ephesians tells us we're being built into a holy temple in the Lord. It's right that the people of God be holy. And the fault that God found with the people in the Old Covenant was that they were not holy. In fact, uh, when people saw them, they actually profaned the name of God. They did not treat him with the honour he deserved because of how his people were behaving. And we are called to be a a holy people. And I don't know what that word uh, conjures up for you, holy, when you hear it. It can sound kind of old-fashioned. It can sound like it's sort of more about what you don't do than what you do do, more about the fun that you don't have and how stern you are and how dour your appearance is. But actually holiness, uh, rightly understood, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which we just read about, isn't it? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is truly what holiness is. And when you see that, I don't know a single person who wouldn't find that attractive, to be holy. And the big shift that happens in, um, between the Old and the New Covenant in terms of our ability to be holy is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the Old Covenant, there was a law given to the people that was on the outside. And there was this um, attempt, could we, is, is it this microphone that's kicking back a little? Or just this one maybe is a little too loud? We're, we're going okay? Okay. Um, yeah, so the, the law was on the outside. And if they attained to those laws that God gave them, they would be the holy people of God. And they couldn't, not because the laws were, there was anything defective in them, but because the people were, uh, were flawed. Uh, And so toward the end of the the Old Testament in the prophets, God starts to say there's going to actually now be a new arrangement in which the Holy Spirit comes. So are you there in Ezekiel 36? Ezekiel 36 verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the law goes from being on the outside of us, something we have to attain to, to being actually written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we now desire to walk in the ways of God. And so it's no surprise that when we get to the New Testament, there is this preoccupation with the theme of sanctification, which literally just means how we become holy how God makes us holy. And it's also no surprise that when the New Testament talks about sanctification, it is always talking about the Holy Spirit's work because it is the Holy Spirit alone who can make us the holy people of God. What is maybe surprising when you read something like that from Ezekiel about how God's going to cause us to walk in his ways, though, is that when the Holy Spirit is in you, he doesn't just make you holy automatically. You don't just kick back and go on cruise control. It's not like you go, I'm not going to do the law anymore, but now I just kick back and wait for God to change me. Or even I just pray for God to change me. But holiness in the New Testament is about an active walking in the Spirit. That's what we see in our passage, isn't it? So have a look in Galatians 5 there. Verse 16. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a pretty astounding statement, I think. Notice there that there's, there's not two commands that he gives. He doesn't say walk by the Spirit and also try not to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a command and a promise. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the, the magnitude of that promise was lost on me for a long time, and I, I sort of struggle to see exactly how that happened, because as a student of the Scriptures, you read Galatians a lot, but just how significant walking in the Spirit is was lost on me, and I think it's because a simple truth like this can be clouded by other complexities that we bring into the picture. So we're encouraged, I think, to think of ourselves as very complex people, and our struggles with sin, whatever your struggle with sin is, you're encouraged to think it's a very complex struggle. It's got something to do with your genetic makeup and it's kind of similar to your parents. It's got something to do maybe with something you uh, experienced as a child that you shouldn't have or something that you actually went without as a child that you should have had and that's coloured who you are. And you can start to think then that to overcome whatever sin pattern you have in your life today is a very complex thing. I've got to go back into my childhood, figure out what went wrong. I've got to delve through all of this stuff. And in contrast to that, Paul just says, whatever your sin struggle is, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify those desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, um, uh, yeah, go back and, and, and figure all these things out and untangle this web. I think another thing that can make this more complex than it needs to be is actually our theology. So the... the um, most prominent sort of way of talking about sanctification is as progressive, progressive sanctification, that we're becoming more and more like Christ day by day until we die, which is absolutely true, absolutely biblically attested, and it's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it, to say we're being changed from glory to glory day after day. But it's a horrible uh, imprisoning thing if you think progress has to be slow as a Christian. 
that it, it must be a slow, long process. And I think, well, I've got this anger in me today, I've got this lust in me today, but I know God is a slow worker, so I can't really expect much to change in the short term. And again, in contrast to that, Paul doesn't say, walk by the Spirit today, and in 10 years, some of the sins you're struggling with, you might struggle with a little bit less, but probably a lot of them you'll be dealing with until you die. He says, walk by the Spirit. This is a promise for today, for tomorrow. Walk by the Spirit. In as much as you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a promise. And it's not just a promise about victory over sin in that kind of negative sense of holiness, the things that you don't do. It's also a promise for the positive because the fruit of the Spirit come in this context. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruit of the Spirit is, uh, is Christianity 101, and I tested this this morning by asking Toby about the fruit of the Spirit, and he remembered them up on the chaos. He threw in a couple of bonus ones, I've got to admit, um, and missed some, some sitters, but he, he knew the basic concept of the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christianity 101. One of the uh, dangers of taking, though, the fruit of the Spirit out of its context here in the Scripture is that, well, there, there are a number of dangers. One is that you can almost turn it into a list of virtues. And so you know from childhood what the fruit of the Spirit is, but you think that they're things that you need to work on. Well, I'm doing okay in the patience department, but I need a little bit more self-control, so I'm working on that fruit of the Spirit. But it's a fruit, isn't it? It's a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, all of them are the singular fruit of the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here is when you're walking in the Spirit, you see all of these things in your life as an indirect thing. They're not things that you work on and chip away at. But also, and this is a more subtle one, I think we can start to think actually that this is the fruit of having the Holy Spirit when we take it out of context. This is the test. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have these things. And of course, when you've got God on the inside, it's pretty hard not to be changed. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying this is the fruit of walking in the Spirit. Because if you think it's the fruit of having the Spirit and it's just an automatic thing, and again, I just wait for God to do these things, you can actually end up in a lot of despair as a Christian when you don't see those things in your life. I'm not seeing love. I'm not seeing joy. I'm not seeing peace. Maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Or maybe I'm waiting for some extra blessing, extra filling that's going to change all of that. Or you can start to actually just redefine the things in your life and say, I guess this is all God promised. You know, my, the, I love the people who love me. That's kind of like how non-Christians love, right? I, I have joy when things are going well. That's kind of how non-believers have joy. I have peace with people when I'm not offended by something they've said. That's kind of what non-believers do. But I guess that's all the fruit of the Spirit is. And it's not. You can see how clearly contrasted the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are here. Fruit of the Spirit is exactly what it says it is, but it's not the fruit of having the Spirit. It's the fruit of actively walking in the Spirit. So what we have here is a staggering twin promise here. One command, walk in the Spirit, two promises. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh on the one hand. You will see the fruit of the Spirit in your life on the other hand. In other words, you will be the holy people of God. So, all of that said, how then? How do you walk in the Spirit? Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. 
if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says here that the Christian is a person who has sort of two natures, if you want to put it that way. We have, on the one hand, the flesh. That's just natural human nature, and it's fallen. Uh, Romans 8, which is a parallel passage to this, will say, the flesh is hostile to God, the flesh cannot please God. As Thomas said before, the flesh is a dead man walking. Nothing good that the flesh is bringing to the table, corrupt in Adam. And that flesh, Paul says, even though it's dead, it still has desires. And when you act on those desires and you give those desires oxygen, what results is the works of the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I think he calls them the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the flesh as a contrast because they are dead. That fruit is living. Works are uh, these dead works of the flesh that happen when you act on the desires of the flesh. And notice there that you, you can hear a word like flesh and think it's about bodily desire. It's about sort of base instinct stuff, animal behavior. But actually, the works of the flesh are not just about that. There is that. There's a sexual immorality and sensuality. But there's also more kind of educated or sophisticated works of the flesh, dissensions, divisions. There are religious expressions of the works of the flesh. Uh, the King James will say heresies, these sort of factions in the church. That's a work of the flesh. The common theme that runs through them all, though, is self. The flesh is out for itself. The flesh is self-conscious and focused on itself. In fact, that's what happened in the garden, isn't it? That was the first way that they knew something was wrong. All of a sudden now, instead of this innocence, naked and unashamed, they knew that they were naked and they hid from God. Self-consciousness, self-focus, self-regard, self-concern, that is the heart of the flesh. But then when you become a believer, Paul says, you receive the spirit of the living God, just like Ezekiel prophesied. And I can't stress this too much. You receive it when you believe it. Because a, another way in which a passage like this can be sort of put on the top shelf for us and out of our reach is if we think, actually, this is a verse for the people who ha have had some other experience, who have had some baptism of the Spirit, some second thing happen, and now they know how to walk in the Spirit. But for me, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And listen, we could, we could debate absolutely whether there is a second blessing and whatever. That's not in the um, realm of this talk. It's an argument that's made um, on a reading of the book of Acts. But what is really clear is actually that when Paul teaches in the epistles on the Holy Spirit, his emphasis is always unity. It is always universality. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, all of us have been baptized by one spirit into one body. He says in Ephesians uh, 1, he says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you received the Holy Spirit. Uh, he says earlier on in Galatians 3, verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now we could talk all about second experiences and if God wants to give us second, third, fourth experiences, of course we want that. We want everything God has for us. But what Paul is talking about in this context is simply the Holy Spirit we receive when we believe the gospel. If you have that spirit, you can walk by that spirit. And again, he says, that spirit 
also has desires. Did you see that? The desires of the spirit are opposed to the flesh. This is the key to understanding how the Holy Spirit leads us. When we ask that question, how do we walk by the spirit? It's got to do with desires. And I think this is really, really helpful because um, uh, Abigail was talking before about uh, dreams and visions and these sorts of things. And these are ways in which God directs us. And especially if you're going to make a a trip across the world, you're going to want something pretty solid like that, right? And it's wonderful that God will lead us in those ways. Um, But here, he's talking about something a little more subtle. He's talking actually about the desires that sort of well up in our heart. It's more subtle and it's also more constant probably uh, than that. It's something that the Holy Spirit is going to have desires in every situation in the same way that the flesh will have desires in every situation, every conversation, every day, moment by moment. And when you act on those desires, when you live by those desires, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. And we see there in verse 22 again what those are. It's interesting, as George and I drove in today, there's a, a great little prophetic parking spot. We, we pulled in, nabbed one of those non-Hope Church uh, spots, and I was feeling kind of bad about it, and my, um, my Paul Scott in, informed reasoning says, now how am I going to argue this if someone gives me a ticket? And I looked up and it said, uh, fruit growers of Tasmania. And I said to George, that's who we are. We're Christians. We're fruit growers. And that's exactly... Uh, what is true here, isn't it? A Christian is someone who walks by the Spirit, and when you walk by the Spirit, you see the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the great miracle of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, it's amazing here that the fruit of the Spirit, that the decisive test is not um, ecstatic experiences, although we, we want to enjoy those. It's not even giftings here. It's not really sort of manifest power here. But it's this, the, the miracle is selflessness. The miracle is that all of these nine fruit of the Spirit are to do with actually not being this flesh, self-regard, self-concern, but now I'm actually loving my neighbor. Now I'm actually loving my God. Now I'm actually having joy that takes me outside of whatever I'm experiencing. So, to walk by the Spirit, I think, means to take the desires in your heart, the thoughts in your mind, way more seriously than we're probably accustomed to taking them. We're accustomed to thinking, um, you know, I've just got this brain and it's firing off in lots of different ways and um, all of it is just me and I've just got to figure out, you know, um, know, what's going on inside of me. But it's all just one thing, my brain. Paul says it's actually two things. There are two voices. There's the flesh and there's the spirit. And if we want to walk by the spirit, we have to be really serious and intentional about discerning what is coming from the flesh and what's coming from the spirit. We want to ignore what's coming from the flesh and we want to implicitly act upon whatever is coming from the Spirit. Now, that's a, a tightrope walk, but it's a walk that happens in relationship with God. And it's something that he sheds light on as we go. But did you notice there that Paul seems to suggest that as it stands, from what we've just said, actually, kind of what I've just said is a recipe for frustration. Because he goes on, he says, The desires of the flesh are opposed to the Spirit. This is verse 17. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That sounds kind of frustrating, doesn't it? And I'm sure you've experienced that frustration. I was thinking of an example, say, you're with a friend who starts to gossip about someone that you know. And you get something inside of you pretty early on that says, let's not go down this route. Nothing good can come from this. 
But then you have something else in you that says, let's absolutely go down this route. And I'm not going to say anything right now because I want to hear some more stuff. And often it's that last louder voice that actually carries the day and you come home, you repent in your car on the way home. That is actually, it's not all us, is it? That's the flesh and the spirit. The spirit wants to bear the fruit of peace and says, shut your mouth, let's stop talking about this. And the flesh wants to actually bear the, the work of discord and it's saying, let's keep going. And often, again, it's a, it's a recipe for frustration. Is that all that Paul is saying here when he says walk by the spirit, that we're consigned to this kind of frustration in every situation. And sometimes the spirit wins the day, but actually more often the flesh does. I don't think he, he's saying that at all because he, he tells us here he wants us to walk by the spirit. That means the pattern of our life ought to be the spirit winning out. That the dominant force in our life is the spirit winning in every situation. Now, how, how are we going to do that? Well, he goes on to say, that we need to be then dead to the flesh and alive to the spirit. You see, this is not a situation by situation kind of walk where I'm talking to Thomas after church and I go, am I going to let the spirit win or the flesh win here? Are we going to talk about you know, the gospel and good things that are happening or are we going to compare ourselves to one another? You know, which one are we going to do? Where I'm not going, when I walk down the street, am I going to look at the girl or am I going to keep my eyes ahead? Which one am I going to do? I'm not sure. It's not a situation by situation thing. Paul says the decision ought to already be made. One of these sides is dead. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. From the outset, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, they've got to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. From the beginning, the, the flesh is crucified. So it's not a situation by situation call. In every situation, I'm saying, actually, I only have one option. If I'm going to be a spirit walker, I've got one option, and that is the spirit. And it's uh, important here that he says they have crucified the flesh because this reminds us that this isn't a mind over matter thing. You know, this isn't a psychological trick. I'll just tell myself the flesh is dead and hopefully that will work. But actually the flesh is really dead. Jesus really did die for you. Jesus really did die to crucify that sinful nature. And therefore, when you remind yourself of that fact, that's all you're doing. You're reminding yourself, you're aligning your thoughts with what is actually true. The flesh has been crucified. And therefore... Uh, Paul will say in a, another parallel passage, Romans 13, that we ought to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its passions. Make no provision. I think that means we ought to keep fleshly logic, keep human logic out of our walk in the Holy Spirit. You can see in this passage here that the flesh and the spirit actually have nothing to do with one another. But I think we can very easily deceive ourselves into thinking that actually some of those old mindsets of our life before Christ, some of those fleshly, natural human ways of thinking are still useful to us. And what actually happens when we do that, when we make provision for the flesh, is that our fruit bearing is aborted. And so we can, um, we can say something like, well, you know, I'm trying to love my wife but I've just been wronged so many times by her. And the scripture says, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's spiritual logic. So I shouldn't be able to remember a wrong that's been committed against me. Or we say, well, I'm trying to be joyful, but you know, everyone has their ups and downs. It's just life, you know. We have difficulties that come against us and it, it steals our joy. 
But Paul says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. So if I'm rejoicing in the Lord, actually there's no reason I should be expecting that I'm going to be going up and down in my joy. Or I'm trying to do this kind thing for this person, trying to do good, but it's just so hard because they're so unthankful, they're so ungrateful. And Jesus says, do good to the unthankful. Do good to those who despitefully use you. You see, spiritual logic is so different to fleshly logic. We call fleshly logic common sense, we call it wisdom, but actually it's of the flesh. And I think it's for that reason, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Thomas, I'm picking on you today. If you pass the test, though, the glory. Um, so in, in Colossians, Paul, I know you love Colossians. Paul prays for the Colossians, and he says that he's praying that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. How? In all... No, no. That's okay. That's okay. See, humility is not mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit, but it is one, and we've, just, we've, we've enjoyed some of that now. So he says, in all... Does anyone know the answer to that? Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all... I'm hearing, hearing whispering. Yeah? What kind of wisdom? Spiritual wisdom. Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all, not fleshly wisdom, not common sense, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says, then you'll be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Then you'll be able to, he says, bear fruit in every good work. But the requirement is that you embrace spiritual wisdom and nothing less. No fleshly wisdom allowed. And when you limit yourself to really only one option, and that is the option of the Spirit, this is the way of freedom. Galatians is a book about freedom in Christ. And walking by the Spirit is the way of freedom, because now you're not just free from the flesh, uh, from the law, but you're free from your own flesh. You're free from yourself. Uh, Often I clean windows for a living, and often as I'm cleaning windows um, at, at someone's house, I'm thinking, how can I speak to this person about the Lord? And often I do have a real internal turmoil, because I've got the Spirit saying one thing, bring this up, and then I've got the flesh saying, no, don't, don't do that. Um, save yourself, protect yourself. But I was pondering these things the other day, and I was at this lady's house, and it became very, very evident very quickly what the Spirit wanted me to do. She just had a double knee replacement. She's in a ton of pain, and she's sitting there um, with her legs up in the chair. And so I'm thinking at the beginning, okay, I know that Jesus in me, he's, he, he was going to want to lay hands on and pray for it. But then the flesh is instantly coming in with some reasons why not, right? Don't, you're going to make a fool of yourself. What if nothing happens? This is going to be awkward. This person has no context for this kind of thing at all. And usually what would happen is I would wrestle about that for a long time and then I'd end up not doing it and then I'd repent in the car on the way home. But I was reminded, I actually, if I'm going to walk in the Spirit, I've only got one option. I've got one option and that is do what the Spirit is saying, ignore the flesh, make no provision for the flesh. And the rest of the time cleaning those windows, then I was, I was actually praying not to get out of the situation, but I was praying productively. God, this is awesome. Thank you for this opportunity. Even if I look like a fool, this is going to be great. Ended up praying for her. I did get out of there pretty quickly, so I'm actually not sure what happened. Um, but, but experiencing the joy of the Lord um, on the way out of there, we only have one option. I'll give you a slightly more embarrassing example. So some of you guys are friends of, uh, uh, fans of uh, Mike Winger in this room. Raise your hands if you're a Mike Winger fan. He's like a YouTube guy who teaches the Bible. And for whatever reason, I'm envious of Mike Winger. I get jealous of Mike Winger, all right? And him specifically, okay? I listen to a lot of guys, but he is the guy. I don't know if it's, my mum's a big fan. I don't know if that's what it is. Um, but I was, I was sitting watching him 
And I was looking at the views. I was going, a million views, really? A million views on this? This is, this is incredible. And then I'm looking through the comments. Pastor Winger, you've saved my marriage. Pastor Winger, you've changed my life. And I'm going, part of me in me is going, that should be me. That should be me, right? I'm jealous of Mike Winger. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. And how many of you know, when you have an, a feeling like that, jealousy, something that goes deep in you, you know, we can deal with some of the externals of our sin, we can dress ourselves up. When you've got something coming from the gut, it's pretty hard to fight. And you're not going to fight it just by saying, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be jealous. Don't be jealous. You get more jealous. Don't do that. You keep doing it. But again, just remembering this. No, to, walk, uh, to not gratify the desires of the flesh doesn't mean keep on fighting the flesh. Paul says, if you don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh... Walk by the Spirit. Turn in the other direction. Don't put out a million spot fires over here, jealousy here, pride there, lust over here. And as you rush around, the other one comes back alive again. He says, turn from the whole thing, deprive all of it of oxygen, and just walk by the Spirit. Just take a moment. What's the Spirit saying? What does the Spirit desire? Ah, thankfulness. Thankfulness that the church of God is being built up by a man like this. Thankfulness, actually, for my own role and station in life contentment, joy, peace. These things come from the Spirit. And we've just got to have the faith to trust. Actually, He is there and He is speaking and He does have those desires in uh, producing those desires in us. So, the flesh is dead. We have only one option. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I like to visualize this as, as a dance. Dance with the Spirit. The Spirit is leading and you're trying to keep in step with the Spirit. It reminds us that this is a personal thing. We're not talking here about formulas. We're not talking here about sort of lifestyles and and, um, philosophies and what will make our life better. We're talking about a personal relationship with a personal God. The Spirit is a he. There's not an it. And as John reminded us last week, you know, um, we read the Bible to get to the person. We hear the sermon to get to the person. And it's in uh, union with the person of the Holy Spirit that we are changed. And as we think of this as a dance, it also reminds us, you know, technique is important in dancing. I actually don't know anything about dancing, so I don't know why I'm using this. Technique is obviously very important in dancing, but it seems like the art of dancing is actually responsiveness if you're the one who is following the lead, that you've got to really trust the person that you're dancing with Know and, and believe that where they're taking you is where you want to go. You've got to silence the analytical thoughts that says, but what if I go over here and is it going to be dangerous and how is this going to happen? And just flow with the person that you're dancing with. We're in a dance with the Holy Spirit. It's a dance of trust. It means silencing those analytical thoughts of the flesh. Sometimes it seems clunky as you follow the lead. Sometimes he might just grab your feet and put them on his feet for a little while like a little kid and sort of dance you around to move you in the right direction. But eventually there's a seamlessness about good dancing, isn't there? And the result between those two people is something beautiful. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. As you dance with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, you bear the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit. So, finally, a warning and an invitation. It would, uh, spiritual wisdom would suggest... Um, we ought to take a good look at the two lists that appear here and decide which one we want our lives to be marked by. Because the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit have absolutely nothing to do with each other, do they? 
Do we want our lives to be marked by dissensions and divisions, sexual immorality over here, drunkenness there, envy, jealousy? Or do we want our lives to be marked by love, joy, peace? Because there, is a, there, there are real and eternal consequences to both of these courses of action. Did you see that there? If you follow the flesh and you produce the works of the flesh, as Thomas said before, you're dead while you live. But not only that, that you're dead after you die. You have no inheritance, it says. Verse 21, second part. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not because all of a sudden at the end of this great book about justification by faith, Paul is going back to works again and saying you've got to do the right thing. He uses that term inheritance because only sons inherit. And you prove yourself to be a son when you have the DNA of the father, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And you actually prove yourself to be a slave when you don't follow the father and you're actually enslaved to your own passions. And slaves have no inheritance rights. So you walk that way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you walk by the Spirit, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And it says a couple of times there, you will also fulfill the law. Against these things, there is no law. You will walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Not because of external constraint. I really want to lust after that person. But the Bible says, do not commit adultery. Not that. But I love my wife. So lust has no place. Not, I really want to gossip about this person, but the Bible says not to slander and not to bear false witness. But actually, love has been birthed in me for this person, so I don't want to do that anymore. This is the way of the Spirit. So, we are new covenant people. We have everything we need to walk by the Spirit. Let's do it. Let's have the faith to believe He's in us. He's producing desires in us. And let's have the intention to every day say, the flesh is dead, I have one option, the Spirit moment by moment, day by day. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for spiritual resources. God, it's so good. It's so good to read your word and to see in it this simplicity, God. And I just pray that you would help us to take you at your word, Lord. Forgive us where we've brought in faulty reasoning. And I just pray, Lord, in the coming days, weeks, uh, you would show us where we have brought in, smuggled in, Uh, desires of the flesh, thinking, reasoning of the flesh into our walk in the Spirit, Lord. It does not belong there. We thank you, Jesus, that truly as you died on the cross, that flesh has been crucified. It's coming to nothing. It has no power over us, no dominion over us. And actually that subtle voice of the Spirit is far more powerful, far more decisive in our lives. So Lord, help us in big and in small day-to-day, Lord, conversation by conversation, moment by moment, hour by hour, to walk in responsive submission to the desires of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.